Philosophy. Descartes. Debate. The Mepropod. 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 The awesomest discussion podcast in the history of the human species. Oh, yeah! Let me tell you of a little girl with an old man emu. He's got a beak and feathers and things, but the poor old fella ain't got no wings. Aren't you jealous of the wedge-tailed eagle? I'm better to da-da-da. Well, the eagle's flying round and round to keep my two feet firmly on the ground. Now, I can't fly, but I'm telling you, I can run the pants of a kangaroo. But da do 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 He can't fly, but I'm telling you, he can run the pants of a kangaroo. All right, in that case, welcome to episode 146 of the Ooh. MEP Report, January 18th, 2016. Is that what we're calling the show these days? The MEP Report? The MEP okay. Report. Yeah. Cool. I think yeah. it's got a certain That's ring nice. to it. I think it's, it's got catchy. some power. Yeah. Should put like a couple shows up. That'd be fun. Yeah, we cleared just it see. with uh, European Parliament, so that's <laughs> oh, what's okay. true. Yeah, exactly. It's true, which is the only other way you'll find actually uh, references to it when you do MEP. But how's everyone doing out there? Welcome uh, to uh, the show as we uh, try to keep your attention for, oh, close to an hour, something like that. Uh, and actually, uh, this try. is... Try? Um, what is this try? I mean, we'll do what we can. There is no try, <laughs> only do. Um, <laughs> and we'll, and we'll, yeah, exactly. I'm already out. <laughs> Actually, Russ, uh, I just saw Russ in person uh, because Russ uh, came by uh, Phoenix Live. Studios, no uh, came by Phoenix Studios and actually hung out and played in television with me. And we concluded a couple things about the oldest uh, console or really the best of the consoles. Um, I think we can all agree. And that's um, that uh, baseball in 1978 uh, looked a little bit different than it does these days. Um, <laughs> there was a red and a blue team. And that's pretty much it. And, yeah, we, um, we played uh, in television baseball. It was just so fascinating to watch, to play the first generation of all of these different types of games that have now been iterated, you know, 20, 30, 40 times since then. Yes. Because they just didn't think of things when they did it the first time. Like the fact that they just don't automatically throw the ball back to the pitcher after the catcher catches a ball, and you have to do that manually. Yep. And it's just... Is that like is when manual. in RBI baseball you used to just run wild on me because like you would do the delayed steal where there'd be the pitch and then I wouldn't like fling it back immediately and then it's like he's on second and then I'd always overthrow it and it would go in the outfield and then you'd go to third and score a run every time you got a base yeah. runner. Imagine Those were good that, times. Imagine <laughs> like the uh, yeah. the great uncle of that game. And that's wow. <laughs> in television baseball. That's pretty much what this is. That's the funny bad. thing about it from my perspective was there's two things. First of all, <laughs> so we weren't sure because we didn't some of the things we didn't either have directions to or we didn't read the manual. So we weren't sure whether or not you could have number one errors. You could have errors. Two, we couldn't we couldn't we weren't 100 percent sure if you could have home runs because we kind of thought maybe it was just this sort of closed box thing and then russ was actually the first one to hit a home run and then what we determined is because i ended up beating him 13-4 we ended up determining that me. any ball that goes past like the shortstop had a chance to go out no matter how slow it was going yeah, really? like it would there's just no, just, there's no y-axis in this game at and all. then all of a sudden it's, it's like plain. home run we're like what 
So and if, either you get a fielder in the way of the ball and catch it, or if it gets by everyone, it just leaves the stadium. But so I had this image of like, eight, up to yeah, it's it's like 800 gone. feet, and then the jet stream just takes yep. it from there. Oh, my God. And then the ricochets were like off the hook. Like, oh, And also, the other thing was that their ability to throw back to uh, to the first base was often astonishing. Like you could you could get a guy who could actually move it and would recover so quickly that the, like the ball would just blow past everybody on the way back. It was very – And my, an, my favorite I mean, part. In MVP, you used to be able to occasionally throw out someone, run, a slow runner, like a catcher who would hit a single, like a, a dead single to first yeah. or to left field or something, you, or to right field especially. You could throw them out. You could throw that, them out. That does happen in real life and once in a blue moon. Somebody yeah. can throw you out from right field. I've seen, yeah. uh, I've seen Jose Bautista do it to I people. saw Guerrero do it once. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah, once in a blue moon. But uh, my favorite part of this game was the the forced base running. So the only person you have control over running the bases is the batter. Right. So if there's a man on second <laughs> and nobody on first base and you start running, the man on second will go to third. He's like, right. all right. It's been given it's the like command. It's like ghost runners. It's like yeah. you guys Yeah, it's like ghost runners. Like pick up ball like yep. one-on-one baseball in the backyard or something yep. Yep. and you'd yep. have ghost runners and you're like Ghost Runner on second, and you'd have to, I don't know what you guys did to innovate this, but I would like yell out sometimes, because you would be like tagging a Ghost Runner about where you were to the base, and I'd be like, Runner on second holds! Runner on second holds! Whoa, wow, that was a lot more deluxe than I ever got. I was always just like Ghost Runner. Exactly. (laughs) Um, In the East Coast, we just called that automatic bases. Yeah. yeah, no, I remember calling it Ghost Runner actually. For me, it was it was Ghost Runner, and it was like you know, based it was all it was all station to station baseball anyway. Let's be serious. I mean, it mm-hmm. was, um, but yeah, so it was, but the, so that was kind of fun to me, and it struck me like between that. Well, okay, I'll make the point that I want to make about the video game effect, which all of you I think will agree with in a minute. But so we played that. That was a good time. Um, maybe not as good a time for us. I think we both had a blast. But and then we played. Uh, then we played no, football. Losing well. And in television football, <laughs> let me tell you. So, first of all, it's five-on-five five football, but okay. Um, they have a playbook, and the way it works, so, you you know, they, they all come on the screen, and the, the applause for television is hilarious, because it's just like, <sighs> which I guess is like some kind of whistling t- type of, like, I don't know what the bass line underneath the, whist- the, the cheering is, but it's supposed to, like, simulate an audience. It kind of sounded, sort of does. Um, so you kind of simulate a crowd. So they're doing that as you're coming out and, you know, you get ready to take the field again. It's just home versus visitor. That's it. There's no, you know, replacement players or anything like that. There's no bench or anything like that. Um, but they have a bunch of plays and to call the offensive play requires you to pick run, pass or kick, then pick, uh, the formation, then pick the receiver one or two you're going to throw it to. Then pick the zone you want to throw it to, and finally <laughs> enter. So figuring yeah, all like of this out, clear launch command yeah. codes <laughs> on television controllers, which are well known for being the worst controllers in the history of consoles. And then every time you do something wrong, you get this Pavlovian buzzer uh, in your ear. Uh, <laughs> So, so at some point we're streaming this oh on Twitch. Gosh. So my chat just starts going like, "Is this the play? No. Is this the play? No. <laughs> Can I call the play? No." <laughs> like it was really, it was a play simulator. And the other thing is that the players all run at approximately the same speed, 
and uh, they all it's it's the full time. So like seconds count down at exactly the same time as they do in real life. It's not like sped up at all. So 15 minutes is like for real 15 minutes and there's no like game clock. So if the okay. clock just happens to be running, you could te technically sit there on a three point lead and just win the game, I guess, because like it would just never come to I guess the end of the quarter would cause you to do it again. Um, right. and, and so the whole experience was basically like a play call simulator. And we ended up playing one quarter. I won through one touchdown. Um, we had a couple of interceptions. Yeah, we had a I think couple the of whole game was was seven nothing, and we got through <laughs> half of a first quarter, which took about two hours. <laughs> slight exaggeration, but not too My slight. God. I mean, not too much. Uh, so that so that was funny. And then and then the last one that I wanted to bring up, we played a bunch, but the last one I wanted to bring up was uh, auto racing. And so in auto racing. It starts out looking like you have all these choices about the course you want to do and like all that stuff and the color car you want to race. And the cars even have differences. Like one car accelerates faster. One car has a higher top speed. Again, this is like 1980, right? So this is fairly heady stuff for this time period. Um, and yet when you actually start driving, you're like, oh, okay, this is how it works. But Russ and I are having a hard time controlling our cars around turns for one thing. And the other thing that we noticed is that like uh, if you got – if the car got far enough ahead – the game would stop and it would say down below ahead and it would award a point to either the blue or the green car. So basically what happened is they did not have the capability of split screen, right? So what it means is if you get a certain distance ahead, it's like, congratulations ahead, you're up one nothing. Let me replace you in the same spot that you started from and we'll see how far you can get the next time. If you get a crash, we reset the same way. But the crash is worth two points to your opponent and being ahead is only worth one point to you. So the consequence of all of this. Oh, and, and then the last part I forgot to mention is there's no accelerator. There's just a break. So if you don't press any buttons, you'll just accelerate to infinity until you crash into a fiery wreck. So the only thing you can do is control your car vaguely steering with the control disc and then break with this one button. So the impact of this is that over time you become more and more cautious so that really all you want to do is avoid crashing into things at the end so there's this one section where russ and i are like both trying to make this one hairpin turn relatively speaking hairpin and neither one of us is able to do it and so we're both near these obstacles that if we go any closer to it's going to crash and we're going to give two points so we're like we're like come on come on and we're like we're like turning like 0 0.05 degrees every 10 seconds like trying to avoid yeah. going for which is was basically like... sitting there idling waiting for the other guy <laughs> to crash into a tree <laughs> yeah and so and the opposite of racing it was it's the opposite like, of racing it was like racing compartmentalized caution game yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> compartmentalized and so what occurred to me about all this was like this showed you the imaginative power of what video games did because at the time I don't remember thinking to myself I mean again I was like what eight nine I don't remember thinking to myself man you know I can't believe that uh, this game only thinks of baseball this way I was just like oh wow this game does this amazing stuff or auto racing I'm like wow this game has incredible speed or this game does whatever it never occurred to me to be like why is auto racing broken up into 758 can component parts of when one person gets ahead of the other person and That's like, what I was going to say so, is like, this was so much better than anything that you could have possibly imagined. Like you were just so excited to be sitting there of like, it's like there's cars and yeah, a track yeah. and it's on my television. Yeah, exactly. like, that's, that's And it see. looked halfway good. Like Russell tell you, it, it doesn't look bad. Like, this is it was, way better you know, than playing tic-tac-toe on paper. <laughs> you know? Which yeah, like football game is compared to paper football. So like yeah. it is a lot more of a simulation. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. So, so we started with like, and I mean, God, you know, Tecmo Bowl. Tecmo Bowl looks like the, like God's gift to games compared to that, right? But like, it just shows you that that we there was this imaginative capacity that we had that we were like, yes, and we were so impressed by it. And now people are just like, oh, look at the polygon count in this. That's nonsense. You know, like we've become so jaded and cynical that we've required a kind of hyper-realism that back in the day we just required movement on screen that we vaguely controlled, you know? Well, I think there's a so. – the, one of the philosophies behind this is that it's often a good thing to have not quite enough money or quite enough technology at your disposal when you make something like this. Um, to be limited in one way, so you have to be creative to yes. get around these sort of artificial barriers yep, yep, to production. Yep. This is the case with movies. It's the case with, Lord knows, like civil infrastructure projects. Like if you just have <laughs> infinite resources, you're gonna do something terrible. Whereas if you're limited, then your creativity forces you to invent something. This is um, I got this from Robert Rodriguez, who mm -hmm. directed El Mariachi, and he did yep. this uh, interview with Tim Ferriss, and he talked about how. People love his super stylized form of filmmaking, but it all came out of the fact that he bought this World War II film era camera uh, at a swap shop. And the film for it was so expensive, he had to do one take for everything that he did because he just couldn't afford to do a second take. And so he had to be really creative with editing whenever a take got screwed up or with syncing when he couldn't get the audio synced. And it ended up being his style of filmmaking just as a consequence of not being able to make the thing that he would have made if he had infinite resources. Yep, I've heard that before, the idea that creativity is built from constraints. Um, there's there's a couple, if you know, the uh, there's a trailer that I may have talked about before a long time ago, and Russ may have heard of this, a trailer called Grayson which was for a film that was never actually made, but it was a trailer to sort of prove that such a film could be made. Um, and it's really impressive when you find that it was done on like, you know, $5,000 and le or less budget and, and basically was mostly volunteer and it involved like, and, and when you first watch the trailer, you're just super impressed. And then later on, when you hear things, you're like, okay, this was a golf course that we basically were able to be on before we got kicked out by the guard. And here's this thing that we put on rollers. We, we put this statue, which was, you know, like scale model on rollers and then rolled it towards the camera and it looks super impressive like you're zooming in towards this statue of Batman or whatever it is and yeah it's the same kind of thing like creativity through constraints and the more that you allow programmers to do whatever they want whenever they want yeah you come up with more impressive graphics but you often come up with less sort of creative aspects as a part of it because you sort of shut down the imaginative capacity and I don't really know what the answer to this is I'm not sure that the answer is let's go back to playing in television baseball but I think that there's got to be some sort of realization that just the I mean we already know this I think but just the extra pixel count and the extra whiz bang is not really what drives interest or could necessarily drive interest in a game a movie or whatever it's it's about sort of you know taking the limits you have and using that to fire well, yeah, your creativity to this day um, we didn't play these games uh, that I'm about to cite on in television but some of my favorite games of all time uh, from the Intellivision are Snafu. We didn't which play that one. I love that too. Literally right? four, uh, up to four different colored lines or snakes that have colored lines trail them as they move around the screen. Yep. And you just try to cut other people's heads off with your tail by blocking them out on the screen. And it's just like infinite strategy and infinite fun. And uh, Shark Shark, where you're just a little tiny fish and you eat smaller fish than you and you avoid fish bigger than you until you get big enough to eat the bigger fish. And you could just play those things for hours, and the mechanics were great. And they I disagree. Didn't... Tetris is a really addictive game. So how yeah. do you explain that? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's Have you really guys ever read the? Um, 
there's an amazing New York Times review of Tetris. I want to read it to you guys. What? Give me a second. Like original from when it came out. That yeah. Was like, this is horrible. This will go nowhere, and it's vaguely Soviet. Or no, it was um, crap. I need a minute. <laughs> okay. I need a minute now to find it. It's so good. <laughs> Never do this. In the meantime, I'll. Quote Leonard Bernstein, which I also just looked up on, which says, to achieve great things, one needs two things, a plan and not quite enough time. <laughs> yeah, that's that's actually probably true. I mean, you do need that you do need the sense that you're right, right on the edge of not being able to accomplish things. Well, that's I mean, you know. I think, Story, you'd agree with me on this. A lot of writers have said this, that, you know, every project that you take on, you should feel... Now, I don't want to go as far as some people say, which is you should feel completely incapable of handling it. Now, that's that's overboard. But I do think that you should often feel a little bit uncomfortable about, you know, can I handle this? And the only comfort that really sets in is if you continually answer the challenge, like Tim Powers does, for example, or someone who's just exceptionally great at everything he does. Like, I imagine Daniel Day-Lewis is like this. Every movie that he does, he doesn't do a lot of them. Every movie he does is amazing, and everyone is a new challenge. And so, at a certain point, I imagine what sets in for him is this notion that, okay, I've always overcome every challenge previous, so I'll probably overcome this one, even though I can't see how. But that's as far as it gets, right? Like, beyond that, you're always like, man, you know, I'm, I hope I can manage this. And you're not 100% like, yeah, I totally got this. Because I feel like that, that sort of slight... Eh, fear, I don't know, uncertainty, discomfort, the challenge that's associated with it is what keeps sort of the creative fire burning, I think. So, you know. I mean, I think we've talked on a fairly recent MEP report about how, like, deadline-driven that I can get to the point where it becomes very counterproductive because if I don't feel a certain level of, like, abject fear of failure yes. and disaster then Maybe i'm slightly over the top on this <laughs> going to get anything like i'm just like why would i why would i start now the the, the panic level is very low like the panic level is kind of uh, i've wrestled bigger crocs than this this is no big deal you know mm -hmm. so until it really gets bad then isn't is that still the case for you i mean can um, you function that way in a workplace because i feel like you're so much more organized and proactive than you used to be for school stuff I, I still struggle with it. I mean, I still definitely, I still have to simulate false deadlines and false urgency for basically everything that I expect to get done in my life. Um, mm -hmm. Like that, that is not something that I like actively. I'm like chomping at the bit, really excited about to do of my own volition. Like I still have to, I still will go through like little minor simulations in every work day of this phenomenon to a certain extent and be like, well, I can do this minor thing or do this minor sidetrack thing. And then eventually I have to like suck it up and create some fear for myself. It's probably not quite as extreme as it used to be for smaller tasks, but there's definitely elements of that still in play. Hmm. The straight out. So, so there's part of it, but it, so it's have have you channeled it? Maybe that's a better way to put it. Have you channeled it more, or is it still? Maybe it was never overwhelming to you. Maybe it was just always. I mean, like, you know. I will also say that this is probably less true of my creative. I mean, see, because I don't associate this particularly with a creative aspect to it. I associate this with like things that have to get done that are fairly rote. Like this is more like writing papers than writing novels. 
for writing novels, the secret that I've found or longer works or even, you know, writing fiction of any kind or writing really creative stuff, I feel like you have to be bored. Boredom is the secret. Yeah, this, there's, there's, because, I read my school, my, my daughter's school, just to know very quickly, my daughter's school has a similar yeah. premise about one of the reasons they don't allow technology uh, is because they argue that they bored, not, I mean, they don't want to bore the kids. There's like lots of stuff for them to do, but it's stuff that if there is a bit of boredom that sits in there, kind of encourage the parents like, that's okay. Like they will come up with stuff imaginatively. So anyway, yeah, I I feel like that's the heart of my creativity because and and for exactly the reasons that we're talking about, right? Like we have invented at this point distractions and simulations that are sufficiently good and sufficiently quality that you can lose your life in them. Like you can just you can spend your life. Again, no one here has any experience with that. But say, like, fortunately, no one has that problem here. Yes. But you know, but you can you can get totally immersed and lose your life in a video game or in any sort of like random side pursuit that you decide to create for yourself. So to actually have the space to be creative, you know, I have needed to force myself to not have those kinds of distractions because writing and creative processes are hard enough and require enough discipline that it's just like if you're not and and I'm also an absolutist, right? Like and I, I'm an absolutist about almost everything in my life about vegetarianism and alcohol and all sorts of things that I excise. So I'm very comfortable with saying absolute hard stop. There's no that, you know, so I if I don't put the kibosh on certain amount of absorbative video games or things like that, then I'm never going to get anything done. Mm-hmm. So the creativity and the creativity really flourishes. I'm also very comfortable on the, you know, sort of what you're talking about with with Senevian school. I'm very comfortable with a certain amount of healthy boredom growing up again, nothing relatable here for you guys as an only child of just okay. like, you know, you find ways to amuse yourself and do whatever it takes. And that's where the creativity, you know, I think probably started for all three of us in some ways. And so when you don't have those outside distractions, then the inner voice can wake up. Mm hmm. And say, my God, someone listen to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, okay, so here's <clears throat> here's this paragraph about Tetris from a this is it was, it was a New York Times magazine uh, article about stupid electronic games. The guy okay. was frustrated about writing. Uh, Tetris was invented exactly when and where you would expect in a Soviet computer lab in 1984, and its gameplay <laughs> reflects this origin. The enemy in Tetris is not some indefinable villain, Donkey Kong, Mike Tyson, Carmen Sandiego, but a faceless, ceaseless, reasonless force that threatens constantly to overwhelm you, a churning production of blocks against which your only defense is a repetitive, meaningless sorting. It is bureaucracy <laughs> in pure form, busy work with no aim or end, impossible to avoid or escape. And that is the game's final insult, is that it annihilates free will. Despite its obvious <laughs> futility, somehow we can't make ourselves stop rotating blocks. Tetris, like all the stupid games it spawned, forces us to choose to punish ourselves. Interesting. That's pretty clutch, especially when you combine that with the music, which was... And it just kept going over and over and over and over. Yes. This is also hilarious because Tetris is unlike some of these other absorbative video games that are highly pixelated and very good at simulating these things. Tetris is one of the games that I will allow myself specifically as a like Kickstarter for productivity when I'm writing longer projects um, because I used to get in the habit when I was doing papers that I had to play that playing three to five games of Tetris would focus my attention in a good way for writing. Mm-hmm. And I've still that habit still lingers to this 
next day that it's like and i I don't think it even helps i don't think the actual process helps i think (laughs) it's it's literally (laughs) no it's literally just at this point in my life i think it did at one point but now it's like a mental mnemonic device for my brain that it i spent so much of my life saying three to five games of tetris right in a row as your like last game for a while means it's time to get serious about writing and so now it's just it's like a pavlovian thing that i've trained myself it's like okay the brain knows it's time to get serious for writing because it's the tetris thing and so i don't know if i've ever uh talked about this before but um i've found that when i'm training really hard at one thing and distracting myself obsessively with something else at the same time then those two things kind of meld in my mind um like for instance, uh, I was in debate camp in high school at Northwestern, um, and I distinctly – and I was playing chess every day at night because I had met this kid who was a state chess champion, and I allowed him to destroy me in chess like 40 times in a row because I felt like I was learning so much by losing. Um, <laughs> but I, so I, de- <laughs> I know. I was like, do it again, again. <laughs> Kill me again. Um, I, I distinctly remember listening to a debate lecture on – I don't remember what the topic was. It might have been Chinese foreign policy that year or something like that. Uh, and I was like dazing off slowly to sleep. And in my mind, as I was in the kind of gray period between being awake and being asleep, the lecture that they were giving was taking uh, was taking the form of chess positions in my mind. And so <laughs> like China being a really strong entity was like a rook somewhere on the board and the pawn surrounding it represented like satellite states or something. There's like that. a and famous I- short story like this with a guy who gets out of prison and the only thing he could do was was chess and he becomes an incredibly brilliant chess player, but he has to stop because his whole life has become like a chess game. He imagines rooks moving on a board with people that he sees and all this stuff. It's, wow. It's it's interesting. It's a short story. I can't remember the name of it, though. But. Yeah. Unfortunately, this daydreaming never made me, like, expert level at chess. Like, I'm pretty good. <laughs> because, the, because the moves you made were still not as good as you wanted to be. <laughs> but that being said, like, and uh, I read a little bit about this phenomenon in, uh, Josh, speaking of chess, Josh Waitzkin. He's the guy that... Uh, searching for Bobby yeah, yeah. Fisher was about. Yeah. Um, he later uh, in his career, he stopped playing chess. He never was a grandmaster. He quit around the stage of international master, which is kind of a notch below grandmaster. And he started doing Tai Chi Chuan, which is like Tai Chi push hands in a comp- competitive format. And he became hands. he became the world champion of Tai Chi push hands, of course, after being like the, the U.S. chess champion. Um, and having a movie made about him. And he wrote a book called The Art of Learning where he talked about how his chess knowledge um, somehow uh, innately made him better at Tai Chi Chuan and like how uh, your brain doesn't kind of segment in the way that we typically think that these activities are all separate and one learning affects another even if you're not consciously aware of it. That shit happens to me all the time when I'm obsessed with more than one thing. That's interesting. Yeah, you know, it's funny what you guys, what both you guys were saying was reminding me about like this idea of the people who create, um, you know, patterns and obviously people who create creative people have a tendency. Sometimes people have this assumption that creative people are like just just totally out there. And like even what you do, Russ, like and it's improvisation is completely to completely out of nowhere. But we all know that improvisers in the same way the way we were able to debate successfully and what we all do is we construct things into patterns 
And I think actually that creative people are some of the most pattern-driven people I, I know, and not because they repeat those patterns necessarily, but because they are consciously aware of sort of lines. And this happens in sort of artistic ways, and it happens in kind of practical ways, like in the case of what you said, Story. Like, you know, you play Tetris because your brain then gets, and this is bio, biochemically demonstrated, by the way, that your brain then fires along the exact same pathways and the same kind of chemicals appear and the same neurons mm -hmm. fire based upon things that people do. And so this leads to that. And, and that's the same, or you have a particular smell that you smell that gives you a particular memory. So it's the same kind of thing. There's a pattern that's being created there. Um, but also that we understand patterns on an, in an artistic level so we can see patterns in behavior, patterns in speaking, and patterns in what we see in the world. And so when we see something happen, we think this would make a good story. And people are like, wow, how do you come up with your ideas? And part of it, I think, is just we, we come up with good ideas because we focus, you know, more and we kind of concentrate more and we look below the surface for the patterns that are there. Now we can try to break those patterns. We can try to work against those patterns. We can be like Joyce, right? Who kind of played with patterns, but then also played against them. But we have to be aware of them first before we can do that. And I think almost every creative person I've ever known sees patterns really well. Uh, and even like musical groups that like the Goat Rodeo Sessions, I think I've talked about before on here with like Yo-Yo Ma and Chris Thiele from uh, Nickel Creek is an incredible mandolin player and like this amazing fiddle player. All these guys come together and they create this incredible, amazing, awesome music and everyone's like, wow. And they, and they said, well, it was just sort of a groat rodeo because we were like, what crazy things could we all do together? But these are all superlative musicians who see patterns in not only what they do, but what in the what the other people are doing. And they just match the patterns they develop with the other patterns. And you have a new pattern, you know, a new idea that you come up with from there. So I've always found that people who are creative are very driven by sort of not rote exactly, but by understanding delineations of difference and how things are laid out for people. So... Yeah. Uh, going back to chess really quickly, um, it's been demonstrated that the difference between, uh, you know, a good chess player and a master isn't necessarily intelligence, and it's certainly not the ability to calculate faster, which you would think that just grandmasters are just better at calculating than everyone else, and they can just go further into their mind into 20 and 30 moves ahead rather than five or six, which is true, but... The main difference between masters and regular players is that is pattern recognition. Is a master can look at a board and they can know that certain patterns represent certain strengths and weaknesses and play towards those patterns rather than have to calculate every position from scratch and determine who has an advantage or not. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, the um, the cross pollination thing you were talking about reminded me also of sort of at the height of my debate coaching career when I was. Um, coaching debate like basically all the week and then I would relax I would have a Sunday Monday weekend because we obviously traveled every weekend and that was sort of the end of the week yep. and so Sunday and Monday were my days off and then I would just like go slam play like 20 hours of poker on Sunday and Monday and <laughs> yep. the, that was like some of the best most consistent poker that I was playing and it felt like I was really enjoying both of these activities but by the end of a debate weekend I would be exhausted with debate and coaching and poker was like the perfect rest and rejuvenation and by the end of binging poker at that level i would be like a little bit tired and fatigued and sick of poker and really excited to get back into debate but it felt like the strategies were kind of fueling each other and they were 
they were refueling. Um, obviously, the schedule left like no time for anything like a relationship or anything like that, which I, I was not in at the time. But well, you know, that's um, but it was really yeah, exactly like for <laughs> for interacting with other humans, but for just solo human development, it was really fantastic. Yeah. But it's true. It's one of the reasons that I've always sort of enjoyed having an academic schedule as like, you know, the day job as, as the academic schedule, mm -hmm. because it so perfectly sets up for because I'm, I'm the same way as you are, I think, story with milestones and, and with sort of portions of the year that I'm used to, you know, and you get right. through a particular portion of the year and you're like, and I really enjoy having May, June, July, August, even now that I'm writing and I kind of think of myself as having two full-time jobs, but even there I'm writing and when I'm writing, I'm not having to worry about syllabus construction. I'm not having to worry about grading. I'm not having to think about, right. I mean, I'm just, mm -hmm. I'm throwing myself into the writing and I'm enjoying it precisely because it's, it's not teaching at that moment. I'm not, you know, thinking about that sort of thing. And because, uh, because I've got, you know, this, this other thing that I can sort of see building. Um, and I don't know. I mean, there's people who I know who could write, you know, four books a year and they could, they, or more of them. I know Matt Forbeck is a guy who could write five, six books a year. Good for him. Like I would lose my, my mind if I had to sit in front of a computer <laughs> and do nothing but write novels. I sorry. Right. Like, it's just not me. It's never been me. Um, and that's partly the whole, like, Greg the Renaissance Man thing. But it's not just that. It's also that I also appreciate schedule variants. So that even if at some point I am a full-time writer, and that would be lovely, even if that happens, mm -hmm. I, I don't ever foresee myself being a person who will just eight hours a day, you know, seven days a week, nothing but I'm not Isaac Asimov. Like, I'm not going to do that. And uh, I think it's partially because I need, you know, that my, that part of my brain engaged for X number of time, but then family part of my brain engaged and, you know, gaming part of my brain engaged and that sort of thing um, to be able to make all three or four, however many segments of my brain that is work. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. Yeah. I can see that. Preach it. Meanwhile, Good Russ. Stuff. All right. Russ is like seven hundred hours of improv. Why? <laughs> you know, if uh, just the act of describing my schedule to anyone, you know, is is somewhat like tiring in and of itself. But I, I feel like I'm so stingy in terms of what I will actually commit energy to that I don't feel like I do as much work as shows up on paper in terms of a calendar, because. You know, improv is like a concentrated burst of energy for like whatever it is, 12 minutes, 15 minutes, a half hour, sometimes 45 minutes if you get a nice long set. Mm -hmm. um, but, it, you know, it soaks up a lot of energy, like just thinking about it the day of, the preparation, the rehearsals, other times. And so given all that, I don't really want to be doing much with my time. I don't know. I don't understand people like, you know, legendary people like Chris Farley or John Belushi who are just like dynamos and they just go party and party and do a show and do a TV thing and do a show and drink and party and strippers and party and sh do a show like I and, then, I, and all yeah. died in, th in their 30s. Well, right? yeah. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, and that's, yes. and that's the drawback because and, you know, the reason I, I say that, I mean, and, and you get that with musicians like I was just talking about this, as you guys know, this has been a horrific year so far in terms of like famous people uh like creative people dying david bowie just passed away alan rickman passed away uh glenn Learned fry from the eagles Facebook. glenn fry just passed away today um from the eagles oh, really? uh yeah just today um let oh, me what's his that. face that i never remember the guy from um the guy who did the ace of spades thing from uh, motorhead all these guys uh you know just passed away and now in all of their cases, they made it sort of late in the game. You know, I mean, now it's still too young, but they were in their 60s sure. at least. But for these people that died in their 30s, 
I would have loved to have seen the sort of comedy that people like Belushi and everyone else would have been producing because I do not believe that they would have gotten worse and they would have gotten they would have been as somebody once said Eddie Murphified where they just became like they lost their edge and they became nothing. I don't think that's true. I think that they would actually gain they would have an edge but they would be sort of tempered with experience and would actually increase their ability to do what they did. And it's so it's so it's like you know, like the burning the candle on both ends thing. I, you totally agree with you. That's what they did. But I find it sad that they weren't able to restrict it enough that they could kind of, I don't know, keep themselves going a while. Like, would Clapton have been a better guy dying at 30? No. I mean, would it, would we have liked to see more from Hendrix than what he could produce by the age of 29 when he OD'd? I think so. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Hendrix would have come up some, with some pretty badass stuff when he was in his 40s. And so, you know, that's that's always the shame of it. It's like, yeah, they just drive 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 and then that's it and um, a lot so. of drugs and a whole lot of drugs and a whole yeah. lot of drugs the yeah. influence also of for that alleged edge too be right? underestimated here, sure right <laughs> no i'll buy that for sure and it's also that edge that we were talking about right but i think you know well story and i are in agreement that drugs are not necessary <laughs> to achieve i'll leave russ out of it <laughs> not only are they i mean no they're not necessary to achieve they're just necessary for certain types of artistic expression what are those types? Are there are there particular broad types? Like, I mean, you know, it depends on what era you're from and what drugs are popular in your your era and your let's, segment let's say, of let's the world your and era. your civilization, your say society. 2016, Russ. In 2016, um, well, uh, clearly marijuana is making a resurgence in terms of like you know state law and use and a general acceptance. Um, so I think that's definitely influencing a lot of the popular culture and media that we're seeing. Uh, with all of the, you know, cartoon revolution, ad yes. adult swim yes. and, uh, type and when it, stuff. And, and when Rick it comes and Morty. to art. When it comes to producing art. To producing art? Yes. Oh, you know, David Foster Wallace talks about being on like five and six day weed binges uh, in his work and okay. a number of other, uh, according to your opinion, actual artists, you know, do similar <laughs> things. Um, actual, actual artists, yeah. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, other things, uh, there's also, you know, a whole prescription drug thing that's going on right now in terms of uh, Adderall and um, Modafinil, all of the, the, like, smart slash attention drugs that I think are usually not attributed to artists. Uh, Ritalin, they're usually attributed to uh, kind of white-collar workers who want to keep their jobs interesting um, and be super efficient at it. Uh, but I do think... It is, you know, given our, the, the like corporatized nature of the culture that we live in, those drugs certainly are affecting the pop culture and the stories that we see and the nature of this. Like, I think often that's that's sort of the subtext of our lives and the way that people interact with each other are these kind of like what's in their system at a given time. And, you know, and there are way more people that are abusing prescription drugs of one kind or other than there are. Uh, psychedelics or other illegal drugs, hmm. but a combination of those two definitely. Like for instance, Ben Carson, I think we already talked about this. Clearly addicted to painkillers. Oh yeah, I would bet my life on that. Like he, I don't, I don't know that we've talked about that on here, but it's a hundred percent true. I mean, the guy is is lost, and he's, he's fried his brain. Like he does not his face. I mean, it might just be that he's a sociopath, and so he doesn't know how to have human <laughs> expressions and emotions and such is the case with many a politician who are trained out of having human responses. But 
there's some there's something has happened. Some wire something has, has been gone disconnected. Yes. <laughs> I agree. When when someone when someone makes the statement, um, there is nothing I have se- never seen a uh, bu- bullet ridden body more terrible than not having the right to bear arms. You know, we're not really in the same zone anymore. We've left we've left zones behind here now with this people. So yep. So yes, so yes, it's interesting. And I wanted, you know, speaking of that, I, I didn't, I, uh, I wanted to make, if I could, a little bit of a segue because <laughs> I saw this today. So um, there was a petition in Great Britain um, that was signed by an enormous amount of the population. I, I don't know, like tens and tens of that, like at least like 70,000, 80,000, 90,000, a lot of people basically um, wanting to ban Donald Trump from being able to travel to the United Kingdom. So this was debated in uh, Parliament. It was debated in the House of Commons. And uh, the House of Commons, one of the conservative, again, because remember that everyone who's in the conservative party there is basically to the left of our Democrats. Okay, so like they're they're we're dealing with a different sort of scenario over in Europe. But one of the conservative members said, the problem is that we don't want to give him fuel for his campaign either, because the truth is, ISIS needs Donald Trump and Donald Trump needs ISIS. Why should we give either one solace or company? I don't want him within a thousand miles of our shore, but if he gets this far, I also don't want to give him more fuel for his United States campaign. So how far down the looking glass have we gone where the United Kingdom is seriously debating whether or not they should ban a the front runner of one of the parties, you know, one of the major parties in the United States from traveling to their country? That is That is some quality work right there. That is some quality work in terms of where one party has collapsed to. It's amazing. Amazing to me. I, I was just at a, um, a family dinner in New York, uh, which was the conversation being dominated by baby boomers at this, uh, at this dinner. Fun times. And, you know, they're all convinced that, and I'm not sure that I completely disagree with them given previous statements of mine, that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Um, that there's, there's it's already no... over. Yeah, you're, yeah you're, already, your plan, it's like already done, ago. and it went through <laughs> Russia and Syria. So that I mean, they're obviously, as many people are, appalled by the whole slate of Republican candidates. They're all convinced that nobody has a chance to win, other than Hillary, from the Democratic side. And I'm just like the lone voice pointing out, you know, which candidate has the most number of individual donors? Oh, oh, Bernie Sanders. Oh, who's polling ahead in? Almost both of the first initial Democratic primary, Bernie Sanders, interesting. And they're just like, he can't win. It's bad. This is, again, this is my agnostic Jewish family saying this, but their point of view is it's bad for – it would be bad for a Jew to be president at this point in time because he would just stoke the fires of scapegoating and take a bunch of abuse from people who are anti-Semitic. And so, therefore, he should not be president. Um, that's a good then, argument for no yeah. one other than old white men ever having power because, you know, they might be targets. Like, mm-hmm. that also was used against Obama, like, by Hillary pretty explicitly. Like, that he'd be a target. Yeah, he's going to be a target and there's going to be racists like me. Yeah. So, of course, she's, she's right well, that it, yeah. it actually has been a target. In fact, he, he has been a target. He's just managed to overcome it, but he's definitely has been a target. And I realize that, you know, Bernie's not exactly a front runner, but I also realize no, that I just, I just come from such a different the information that reaches me is so different than the information that people get just from watching facebook cnn and let's get down to it i mean here's I'm, what i think is going to happen since we're since we're talking about the democrats 
kind of thing because I think it's I mean I I have been arguing for months with people and it gets tiring because people assume that it's all my lefty perspective on like Bernie is infinitely more electable than Hillary like Ber- like Hillary it has been the target of Republican like hate speech and disdain and pr- they have been practicing to beat Hillary for like 16 years so that like there's no way there's going to be crossover votes for Hillary like no one is coming in to vote for Hillary like at least you can get people to stay home if it's Trump versus Bernie like it's going to be a lot of avid supporters of those two people and everyone else is going to stay home and be horrified or they're going to run their own candidates but so like I think Bernie is infinitely more electable than Hillary I think Hillary is pretty unelectable what I think is pretty clear is going to happen is that Bernie is going to win Iowa and New Hampshire then we're going to have a really interesting moment because traditionally if someone wins Iowa and New Hampshire, they're just going to like go off and basically have a pretty easy cakewalk to the nomination. Except but Bill Clinton the was Democratic elected, where he lost both. I just want to point out. I think he didn't he win nope. New Hampshire? Lost both, came in fourth. He got crushed okay. in both Iowa and New Hampshire and won everything else. But I'm just right. saying, just wanted, wanted to throw Generally that in Generally speaking, right. So the, the question is going to be, the question is then going to be like, because I don't think there are any, I mean, Kevin Grinberg would disagree with me, but I think there are no more than like five or seven enthusiastic Hillary supporters, right? Like everyone's kind of holding their nose and is being like, I don't agree with that, but okay. Well, I have to vote for her, whatever. So I don't think like anyone's going to like turn out enthusiastically, but the question is going to be, will enough of the people who have the voice that Russ's family has, that so many people from APTA, that so many people I've encountered have of like, I just believe in my heart that Bernie Sanders is unelectable. So I'm going to vote for Hillary, even though I don't like her as much as Bernie. And I think she's more realistic. Like, will those people then be scared enough by Iowa and New Hampshire that they turn out? Or will they be changed enough by Iowa and New Hampshire that they're like, well, maybe I'll stay home and see how this plays out. Or maybe I will go and actually vote for Bernie. That's Hmm. the question, I think. Interesting. An interesting hypothesis, sir. Well, what 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 do you think? You think it's not? <laughs> no, I, I think my my I I'm fairly confident that he's going to lose Iowa in a fairly close race. Um, I think he's going to lose Iowa by maybe three or four points, which is going to hurt because his campaign has done a horrific job at managing expectations. So now the assumption is that he's riding off into glory. So I think that's going to hurt him. I think he will probably win New Hampshire close, um, but, you know, a little bit more than Hillary wins Iowa. Like, I think she's going to win Iowa with three or four points. He'll probably win New Hampshire by like five. If he doesn't, if he squeaks out one point in New Hampshire, to me, that's a loss. Um, because right after that, his demographics go in the toilet. Because right now, Bernie essentially appeals to um, higher educated young white males, um, of which Iowa and, New ha- and Vermont, and sorry, New Hampshire have quite a few of. Um, after that, he gets to the rest of the country. The, what what actually rep- represents the country, you know, blacks, <laughs> Hispanics, and they are not going to vote for him. Um, I don't believe at all. He's done almost no outreach to those communities. Um, Tad Devine not. is a three time is a a three time loser and a one time national loser. Um, and Weaver, whose day job when he's not running a campaign is running a comic book store in Vermont. True story. Um, is not ready for a primetime national campaign, which is why when they've been consulted several times about things they've done, they're very good at manufacturing outrage over the latest thing that happened or didn't happen. They're very bad at actually running a national campaign. And well, so but, I think but the hold end on. result... I think their outrage, though, is well-placed, given that the head of the DNC right now is a former Hillary Clinton staffer who's been using all of her time and energy to make sure nobody watches the Democratic debates because she just wants to ensure this Clinton inevitable 
uh, nomination. I, so I don't, she, she I, makes I the debates on weekends and uh, holidays. She, yeah. she's, and, a, she's a terrible DNC head, but what you just said is factually untrue because every debate that happens, Hillary looks better and Bernie looks worse. Yeah, so but that, if she were really no, trying to throw it in the tank for Clinton, the DNC has she'd be throwing so no more debates. Them. Like, that's what they've done. Yeah, they, I mean, they don't want people watching the debates because they don't want to change the air of inevitability around Hillary I, Clinton. I, don't, I just don't agree with this inevitability thing. I think the problem is everyone that I've heard from the burning camp seems to be arguing that Hillary Clinton is the same candidate she was in 08. I just think that's factually not true. She has vastly different people. For one thing, she doesn't have Mark Penn, thank God. And she's hired a bunch of Obama people. And Obama, you can say what you like about him, is probably the greatest campaigner of the last 75 years. He's a tremendous campaigner. And his people know what they're doing. And she hired a bunch them this time around so i agree with you that Debbie wasserman schultz is a terrible like dnc chair and should be fired i agree on that score but not having nothing to do with whether she's in the tank for clinton she's doing a terrible job if that's what she's trying to do because clinton you know continues to dominate in the debates where she's clearly at her best i i just think what's going to happen is that you know i think that again she'll win iowa he'll win new hampshire close he will then get rolled in south carolina by 25 points plus and I think he's not going to have any path forward going going from that point moving forward. I just I don't think outside a very limited daily cost echo chamber that there's a lot of attention paid to Bernie. And the problem with arguments have you like, seen have you seen Reddit lately? Uh, well, oh, Reddit, that bastion of uh, where where people go to hang out. I mean, come on, man. Reddit, it gets, Reddit is, it gets a billion page views every day. Yeah, by by about five hundred people that could refresh it. On, on, you know, unnecessarily. I'm just kidding. But Reddit is not that comparatively to the electorate. Neither Reddit nor Daily Kos is a big group of people that go and vote. These are very similar to me to Howard Dean voters in 04 who were going to go out and do all this stuff. And they sent a bunch of people to Iowa and turned the Iowa voters off. And Dean lost. And that was the end of that. And after that, the media unfairly took his attempt to rile his supporters with a, you know, a shout of, you know, excitement and getting them all fired up and decided to make it into something that it wasn't. And what they did to Dean was shameful. And Dean, by the way, was a thousand times better as DNC chair than Wasserman Schultz was. So I feel bad what they did to Dean. But the bottom line is the reason they lost is because they had a bunch of the same kind of online warriors doing what they're doing here and thinking that all of these people being excited and a bunch of college kids at a college rally was going to get bring people over the finish line. They well, do not go out I, and vote. I think and they don't good, go out to caucuses. This is I a just, good litmus test because yeah. the world that I live in is one where everyone who watches CNN hears nothing but Trump and Hillary news. And everyone who is a cord cutter who reads the internet sees Reddit politics where the top 10 stories are all about Bernie Sanders every single day because there's a massive community of supporters that are shunned by the mainstream news owners who want Hillary to become president because they donate to her campaign and the large banking interests donate to her campaign. And, Which is why and they've so, spent billions of dollars to defeat her with these Republicans, right? Well, they spend billions of dollars on both sides, but what they certainly do is make sure that nobody is talking about Rand Paul and Bernie Sanders and other uh, anti-establishment candidates. And the reason that Donald Trump got all the coverage he did was just he was so absurd that news agencies just started running stories about him until he became this sort of juggernaut number one candidate just by virtue of being and on TV all the time. And they're still running stories that are like, so when Trump inevitably implodes, that's know, true. They they are though he's up by twenty five points things. and is going yeah, to cakewalk yeah. to everything because like, they don't. They're just yeah, in total denial about the they, phenomenon. They are. Like, well, they they don't understand. Denial. It's like they haven't they haven't paid attention to the creation of the modern Republican Party. Like the reason that he's winning is because he is the Republican Party. They built exactly what he is. It's just. He brings but out the Koch the brothers open, wrote the, an article the where they explicitly else, said, so. I can't believe we're not buying more influence. Like, we really thought we could. <laughs> like, they I literally said, they literally it. said, not the onion. Like, they they literally I know, said, I like, saw that. I really think a few billion dollars would get more, more influence. But, like, 
we well, can't control these people anymore. And, see, it's like, and I think so, the I reason that this is a litmus test is because this is where we find out whether the old forces of power still wield the same kind of power that they used to. Whether, you know, the the four or five entities that own 60% of the television programming that we're allowed to watch, you know, whether they still can control the whole electorate or whether it's become decentralized to the point where things can happen outside of their control. And the internet wants agree. things to happen other than what these conglomerates want. And I want to see who wins. I generally think that I think you're probably right on some of that. I mean, one of the interesting things was uh, one of the guys who comments on Daily Costs is uh, Bob Salvatore, who's also who is the same Bob Salvatore who writes uh, Drist, if any of you know, like the Dungeons of Dragons novels, like a bunch of those are Bob Salvatore. He's basically Wizards of the Coast biggest seller. Um, and uh, so he's a and I actually got into a discussion with him over this. He and I were both President Obama fans. So sitting next to him, this is a true story at Gen Con. I was next to him in line uh, and both of us were having book signings. And of course, I had like, you know, this is your this is like five years ago or something. So I've got one person in front of my table and he's got like a line of you know a hundred and so he's sitting over to me and he's like one person is waiting for like five minutes while he talks to me about how frustrated he gets at daily cost bashing obama it was very funny he's got this very thick boston accent he's like and then obama and what they don't understand and i'm like like talking to ted kennedy while all these people are waiting for him to sign their book it was kind of <laughs> kind of a funny only a gen con moment but anyway so one of the points that that uh that he made about this was he hopes that we get to the point where Bernie Sanders, you know, gets all these people to vote for him and we're wrong because it means that the electorate will have shifted substantially enough that things could change. Now, I actually don't think Bernie Sanders is a good candidate. I would obviously vote for him over any Republican because that's obvious. But I actually don't. I think he's a one trick pony. And I think he has a tendency to really gloss over both gun control issues, which is very important to me, and glosses over racial issues a lot, which annoys me. Um, but I and I and I don't particularly like his personal style because I think he's going to get nothing done in Congress. But if he gets to the point where he somehow convinces people to vote for him, he will have had to change some of those things. And maybe the electorate will have changed enough that it's worth doing. The only real issue is, I agree, you shouldn't vote out of fear. But given the fact that I really do think, and I don't want to go down Russ's line of sort of apocalypse, but I honestly don't know if the world would survive a Republican president, this crop of Republican presidents. I think the Republicans need to be absolutely obliterated so that they can hopefully get some sense knocked back in them. And if not, they can become a Southern regional party a la the Whigs. But if one of those guys gets in and gets to nominate Supreme Court justices, I don't know that I, I wouldn't surprise me if they nuked us within the first six months. I, I think it is that important. So I, you know, whether or not that means I don't buy that Sanders is more electable because Sanders has had almost no attacks made against him of any substance. The reason that the Republicans on, on during the Democratic debate last night, the Republicans are tweeting out fact checkers that are helping Bernie Sanders. This is 100 percent true. The RNC was tweeting out things saying Bernie Sanders is right about this point. Bernie Sanders is right about that point. Why are they doing that, pray tell? Because the last thing they want is to face Hillary Clinton in election. If she was this weak, if she was this unelectable, they would be watching and clapping. They and also don't think Sanders Trump is a serious way. candidate and Trump is murdering all of their candidates. I think so the like, RNC I, thinks I, that I do no not now, believe that the RNC... I think the RNC thinks so now. I think they do. I think they believe. No, I, I think, think Trump so. does. So I think the RNC uh. has no idea what is actually going on in the American electorate right now. And, uh. and, and, and what I think, I mean, here's the thing. I think that in South Carolina, 
I just don't think that any of those people who turned out for Obama and, you know, got really gung ho and excited about that election. I think that at worst for Bernie, they stay home. I don't think that they're really gung ho for Hillary or really excited about things for Hillary. You hear NPR news news stories all the time about, you know, well, this just this doesn't really feel like an election for us. And this doesn't really matter. Like, I just think South. I totally disagree. Carolina could have almost no turnout and Bernie could could tie it up. I just don't think that Clinton has done any sort of good job of galvanizing any excitement. I think she's generated a lot of fear. I think there's a lot of educated people who are saying what you're saying. I don't think that she's generated like enthusiasm or excitement of oh boy i don't i i I utterly disagree i think there's an enormous amount of excitement among especially females to vote for her um and i also think that she's done a thousand times more outreach than bernie has it also helps that she's embraced president obama as opposed to wanting to tear him down which has been bernie's approach i think that's pissed off a lot of people in the african-american community i watched this really funny video um that was done it's called this week in blackness if you get a chance to watch it and it has this group of uh, black commentators talking about um, the statement that Bernie Sanders again made last night, which is the I marched with Martin Luther King line, and then being like, did you realize that this man marched with Martin Luther King? And the other two are like, my God, I had never heard that before. It was hilarious. Like, all he needs to say is I marched with Martin Luther King, and everyone falls into line, and they're like, oh, yep, he, listen, no reason to talk about civil rights anymore because this man, 50 years ago, marched with Martin Luther King. I mean, that is the nature of what the African-American community thinks that Bernie Sanders has done for outreach. I I totally disagree. I couldn't agree more. I, I couldn't disagree more. I think that he's I think that she's established a lot of excitement. And I think Bernie Sanders has turned a lot of people in those communities off, in my opinion. So we'll see who's right. But I, I just. Yeah, we'll, I don't, we'll I don't, find out. We'll find out. Probably before the show goes up. <laughs> exactly. <Yep. laughs> the next time, one of us episode. is going to be like, so... <laughs> yeah, after uh, President Jesse Ventura gets elected, we'll all go back and listen to Well, I was going to say, how's your boy Lawrence Lessig doing? How goes the... the well, Debbie, Debbie Wasserman nipped that shit in the bud, didn't she? She was like, no, you can't be in any of the debates even though you've raised the third most money among Democratic candidates. And he's like, eh, if I can't be in the debates, but I Martin can't But really... Martin O'Malley still gets to hang out for I know. no reason whatsoever. He's like, well, riddle me this. How long has Lawrence Leslie been a Democrat. Been a Democrat? Yeah. Just curious. I don't know. Fucking it's his life. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. And how same amount of time that Bernie Sanders has been, which is about six months that it's What argument is Bernie Sanders what are you still talking about? He's like, a Democratic candidate running for the Democratic Party. If you don't still, have enough the actual cred to run for a Democratic office, you ought to be a Democrat first and not just choose it when it becomes like acceptable to you. What? Why would you, as a Democratic Party, want so you're to saying the only people that can run for a nomination are like super party insiders who've like been part of the party infrastructure for their whole lives? These are the only no, people that think, can be that are electable in our country. I think that's no, just an think, abhorrent idea to me. No, but I think that you want people who actually run inside a party. I think it's reasonable to expect so, someone who's going to nominate someone for the Democratic Party the to issue nominate. I have. You have to be a conservative. No, you have to be a Democrat, which isn't the same thing. You have to be a conservative Democrat. Here's the issue Democrat? I have with this, Greg. No, a Democrat. When I vote for Green Party candidates, everyone in the Democratic Party ridicules me and says those people have no chance. So then Bernie Sanders join, like, runs in the Democratic election because everyone says that that's the only way that you have a chance. And everyone's like, well, he can't run. 
He's not a Democrat. Oh, no, so I have no problem how with How is someone outside the mainstream supposed to get any traction? The argument that I'm making here is not – the argument that I'm making – he has every right to run as a Democrat if he likes. I, but the argument that I'm making is you can't then be surprised when the party apparatus upon which he is relying isn't very happy when, for example, Bernie Sanders sues the exact same apparatus. Like, I mean, you can't – you can understand why people who are these people – it's sort of like yelling at, like, diplomats who are career diplomats from Republican to Democrat to Republican to Democrat president and who get – you know, people are like, well, this this particular career diplomat, it's like yelling about diplomacy when they're like, look, I've been here doing this for a long time. If you're going to bitch and moan about diplomacy generally, you ought to know what we do first. It's just sort of human nature to say if you're part of a party apparatus that has been built up over years and that extends into the states and that extends into the towns, that you might actually want to say that you've done some work within that party before people are going to be like, yes, let's nominate you to be the head of this party or like you know, I mean, the standard bearer me, for the party. This is so all I think it's a fine for you to vote to, for it. But. This is all just a mechanism to prevent anyone from changing. Or well, no, because I, I, and I agree entirely with story that Bernie Sanders should have the right to vote for who he votes for. That's fine. I wouldn't do all the stuff that he's done that's anti-DNC to the same extent because I, I just don't think he's I think he's causing himself problems when he relies on that same infrastructure, as, by the way, he has in Vermont for many years well, since he has a de facto they, set up with the, the Democratic Party there like, not to have anyone run against him so that he can run by himself. He's against the DNC because the up. DNC confiscated his donor analytics after he stole campaign he, data what? from. Of his... this thing after he stole campaign data from Hillary Clinton and admitted it by firing the guy who did it, who was the head of their information technology division. I mean, it's it's the most nonsensical thing in the world to get mad at a, an organization that says you just stole stuff from the other candidate. We're going to, for less than twenty four hours, mind you, restrict your access to this stuff you just stole. But he didn't and then he somehow gin that up. It would have been forever. About he that. still wouldn't also, have access. If he why has the suit not been dropped then? Also, they didn't steal it. They the ratings company sent. The information yes. from Hillary Clinton's campaign. Yes, to and it Sanders took them campaign. several hours of looking at it, staring, going, wait, maybe this isn't material we should have. Give me a break. They, he stole stuff and then run, ran around and screamed because they cut off his access and raised money off of his having stolen stuff. It's hilarious. It's like know. watching the Patriots. <laughs> like we, we do deflate gate and then it's our it's every our everyone else's fault that we deflated footballs and that we lied about it. And now it's everyone else's fault that we are in this position. I don't know. For it's me, from what I've hilarious. seen, I've seen Bernie Sanders run the most high roaded political campaign that I've ever <laughs> seen from anybody okay. that he refused to All attack right. Hillary for, for months. He refused to acknowledge anyone or anything bad to say about Hillary and was just saying, I want to do this on the issues. I don't care about anybody's personal life. I'm not going to engage in any discussions about anyone's personal life that has nothing to do with the issues. I've never seen a candidate do that mill. before. I certainly never saw Hillary do that. Hillary will get into the dirt and bash whomever and whenever. Yeah. I mean, he certainly didn't uh, fundraise millions of dollars off of off of the, his own theft. So that didn't happen. That no didn't way. happen. Yeah, yeah it sure did. Come on. It 100 percent did. Oh, you mean when he said we the DNC just banned us. So please contribute to our campaign. Yeah. And then You're said so about? repeatedly and then tweeted it and said, oh, by the way, uh, it's a despicable campaign trick. And then went back to it after the access had been released and said it's still a despicable trick. And then they are very good at ginning up outrage.
very good at making money off of it. He did exactly, by the way, he did what I think politicians generally do. But this idea that he extends and lives off his own, that he is his own, like he's, he's this messianic figure that does stuff on his own and is not a political figure is nonsense. He does exactly what the rest of them do, except that he likes to raise money off of being holier than thou. And in this case, he was proven not to be holier than thou. I mean, it's 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 farcical, farcical. Player think left. That he did this, Nelson. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's fine. Like, you know, we can certainly agree to disagree. We all agree that the common enemy here is the horrific Republican candidate. I just think we disagree. I, on I, how don't, I, don't, I don't agree with that. Trump to Hillary. But... Yeah, I don't agree with that. Wow. I, I think that uh, uh, wow. any one really? of the Republican candidates would be a, a George W. Bush level galvanizing force for the left, whereas Isn't Hillary that exactly would accomplish what you said nothing. about Ralph Nader exactly what you said and we get the result was a hundred thousand dead iraqis that's exactly what was said by them in fact nader himself said it he said you were a provo i would rather have a provocateur in office and that provocateur savaged the constitution and destroyed the country of iraq and the innocent lives there to say nothing of the american soldiers in the process and obama is and continuing the, the same, same policies thing. to slaughter would obama have killed a hundred thousand innocent and iraqis I think he might have. I think, I, we don't know Come what on, Obama story. would have done after 9-11, but I don't. Yes, I, we do. He I, would not have Obama done that. does not have the high ground on this issue. OK, Obama but, has done a lot of good things. Obama. I like the Iran nuclear deal. OK, that's great. But Obama has not. It does not have some sort of high ground over Bush on issues of killing Muslims. Not I mean, again. And, numbers. Numbers prove you wrong. Even if that were not true, uh, we weren't not talking about him. We're talking about would the people who were running, do you think they would have after 9-11, assuming 9-11 even would have happened, because we know that while Bush was in office, he ignored these warnings that the Clinton administration had tried to give him. Would, even assuming that it had happened, would Gore have run to Iraq, a country which George Bush specifically, because what they did to his daddy, specifically had issues with, would they have gone to Iraq and launched that war. Uh, if and Texaco called for it, I don't know that Al Gore would be the politician to resist the, the call of Texaco and ExxonMobil. Not a chance. The, you could not find a politician who was willing to do that on that side of the aisle who had a legitimate presidential shot, except for this idiot war criminal Republican who should be in jail for the rest of his life. It, it's not a chance. And throwing the election to him out of this notion that we're going to somehow make create an environment where magically the left will rise from the ashes is such nonsense and did such damage to the America, not only to America, the hell with what it did to America, but to the world well, that it's shocking to me. That but we're you know what? It's like, it's I like, think like Obama the had a gigantic mandate coming in in 2008 right after that environment and that he just didn't seize on that mandate in the way that he could have. But he I mean, at that point, he was dealing with he, a train wreck, man. He, like, but he absolutely galvanized wreck. the will of the entire nation who desperately wanted things to change from the previous four years and right. gave him and gave him the mandate to do that. And, you know, he unfortunately didn't uh, execute a bunch of his campaign promises until his lame duck year in office. But mm. had he people might. And, and again, he has had, you know, a historically relevant presidency following the disastrous eight years before it. So it I, might have played a role in that. Yeah, I mean, I just I just think the the train wreck that he was facing would have been impossible for anybody to clean up that quickly. I think he's going to be seen as one of when all said and done, he's going to be seen as one of the great presidents ever. I think he's going to measure up in the top five or six, um, you know, presidents ever because of what he was dealing with. Um, I, you know, I, I 
Obama I, is like the Force so. Awakens. Like he's a great president. When you <laughs> so he's like like Bush with the, the prequel. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, he's like he's like the prequels. I guess it's true, actually. And and you know there. And I guess about the right time, right? Like Bush was in office, right during the prequels. Yeah. Maybe actually. That's an interesting way to look at all this. Maybe a lot of this just comes down to the nature of the Star Wars movie that we were confronting at the particular time. Because the prequels came out during the worst conceivable time in American history, during the worst presidency of the last century. So, Do you remember the, the kerfuffle it. when there were lines in the prequels that people felt like were targeted against Dick Cheney and George Bush? Like uh, Ewan McGregor saying things like, only a Sith deals in absolutes. And yes, I remember that. Yeah. GW <laughs> yeah. right now. <laughs> I do that's remember empire. that. I do remember that. That's funny. Yeah. yeah, I never thought about that, but maybe that's true. Maybe maybe there's some kind of Star Wars connection. That would be nice. It would be nice if we could all sort of reduce things to that possibility. But you'd think that, like, it's interesting because I remember actually reviewing a show in the city not long after that. I think it was 2003, I guess, um, that was basically about, it was about, like, Red State. No, that can't be because I wasn't actually reviewing shows until 2005. So it was later than that. But it was basically about, um, uh, but it was still during Bush's presidency, and it was, like, Red State versus Blue State or something. But it was very, like, I, I was sort of, like, it, it was almost like he became too easy a target, so it wasn't that funny. You know, like, they're just like, and then he does this terrible thing, and I'm like, yes. Like, there, everyone is just sort of, like, in this liberal New York audience. Everyone is like, yeah, this this guy sucks, yeah. Do you guys think terrible. that if, if today Harrison Ford decided he wanted to run for president right now, that he would just immediately be the front? As, as an independent, he's like, I'm the Harrison <laughs> Ford party, and I'm running for president with the Harrison Ford party. I think he might he might just have 30%. Like, the next day, he might just have his 30% of everything. Could he have slogans like Harrison Ford, he shoots first? <laughs> totally. <laughs> Actually, I think someone might ask him what he stood for. Like, at least one. <laughs> I'm not sure. Would it be precious like, if it's the reporter who's got might. a Greedo mask on, though? He's like, Uso solo, solo. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? Now, is there a guy who's so popular in America right now that if he ran as an independent, he would immediately garner, like, and it's not Jesse Ventura. He garners respect from Minnesota, maybe. We, we need, like, a real, like, na is there a national figure that exists? That's so yeah, powerful. I mean, Harrison Ford's up there, right? I guess so. Is he That'd like Liam Neeson? Tom Tom yeah, Hanks. We just watched him in Bridge of Spies, um, which was a fine movie. We enjoyed it. But I think Tom Hanks could run for president and do reasonably well on name recognition alone. You think so? You think he'd be credible? LeBron. LeBron would have. A LeBron choice. James. <laughs> That's true. Oh my no, God, LeBron totally James. True. Is he thirty-five? He's not thirty-five no. yet. No, 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 no. He's like yeah. thirty. He's thirty-one. I think. Yeah. 30. That's, Can you imagine LeBron James like I've Shaq, decided Shaq, I'm taking my talents to DC? Back. No, Shaq, I think I think LeBron way way over Shaq. Really, I, I don't know. Shaq. People love Shaq because Shaq Could, has you... done so much amusing stuff with his like post career. Well, like, like Barkley too, because he Barclay doesn't take himself kind of at all seriously, which is true. the key to everyone's heart. I wonder if LeBron James and a ticket of LeBron James and Michael Jordan. You know, like yeah, I don't. Michael yeah. Jordan already has an ambassador to North Korea. He's or wait, or wait, Dennis Rodman. So. What about LeBron James and Aaron Rodgers? Oh my god! As a so as a get, ticket? Yeah, so you can get two sports in. <laughs> I don't think they'd get you along. Need a guy. Yeah, and well, that's like Cleveland, sure and Wisconsin. Do. That's terrible geographic coverage there. <laughs> what about? Well, <laughs> otherwise, if you want coverage, it, yeah, yeah if you want coverage, it'd be like Carmelo and Kobe. Ugh. But like, that's not that, no that, that, zero that ticket. No, 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 no. They won't even win New York. No votes. No votes for that ticket whatsoever. Zero votes. Talk about no enthusiasm. Like, you're gonna be like. Oh, Can you imagine oh. they'd be like their first kickoff would be in the garden and like even the like Carmelo Anthony and everyone's like 
Oh, I've got <laughs> like the I've one got, single. They'd also be the first people to run as a co-ticket. They're like, no, there's no vice president. Here. That's Just true. Two presidents. <laughs> yeah, give me the ball. <laughs> you ready? Are you ready for this? Your next president, if he decides on a whim to do it, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, see, but see, I don't think I. First of all, he's awesome, but I don't know because I think deGrasse Tyson. I think conservatives are annoyed by him because he dares to be black and a scientist, so they, that bothers him. And they only have room he's for like, one of those, and that's Ben like Carson, they and they drugged him. So. Ben Carson is exactly well, right. Like, right, right, yeah, yeah. Not a Neil deGrasse Tyson. You're a smart sleepy, black guy, sleepy idiot. Like he's like Neil deGrasse Tyson. Like, what about like could, does does Bill Nye command enough respect no. among the populace? Now? He can't even be on network TV. He does like internet TV spots and. You know, a lot of people like Stephen Colbert. What about Colbert? Could oh, Colbert he, could, could definitely do it. Colbert Carell would be a fearsome, a fearsome. Carell, t- yeah. Or no, no, uh, Colbert Kevin Hart to get the new and hip demographic. Ugh. Well, see, because Hart would make it would make Colbert look better. I'm not saying that he's funny. I'm he's saying like that he would, you know, and for yeah, Colbert. he's like he's like the he's like the Chris Tucker for uh, you know Jackie Chan. You know, it's that's that's like his that's his shtick. He could I could see him doing. Here's that. a question: Can we name? And I'm sure we can't. Can we name anyone who would be involved in this discussion at all who isn't rich, who is not a rich person? Of course not. You don't even know rich people. They're not famous. <laughs> or non-rich people, non-rich right? Rich like, people. like, yeah, they're not, they're not famous. Probably not, yeah. Who would I mean, I guess be? it'd have to be like an internet celebrity or something. Someone should do a Bill Nye but be like poor as their shtick. They'd be like Bob Jones, the homeless guy. <laughs> I don't and have any money. Be, yeah, and that will be their thing. I mean, because Bill Nye, it all started as a gag. I think I've talked about this on the show, but he no, was really? just—I don't think I knew that he no. was on. So his—he's got to start in Seattle. I knew this because when I was living in Oregon at the time that he was on, he was on a show that was a spoof of Saturday Night Live. I'm gonna let that really? sink in for a second. Okay. In in the Seattle local market called Almost Live that had like all of these different gimmicky things that like half of it was basically like local Seattle jokes, but then they just like did random spoofs of like what a late night show would do, but it was also a late night show. So it was sort of like imitating and sort of spoofing Saturday night live at the same time. And one of the segments, which was his first gig on TV, his first gig of anything other than a normal day job. Um, Cause he wasn't a trained scientist. I don't believe was just Bill Nye, the science guy. And he would do like, goofy science things but they were all in spoof they weren't like real things they were like this is what like a public access science thing would look like i'm bill nye the science guy ho 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 and that was his launch and then when almost live went off the air um he i think sort of totally spun it around from a spoof thing into a like pbs kids type thing of like yeah we'll do real science and i've been learning some stuff about science but that's that's where you got to start that's where so it all he came actually from. was not a scientist then to begin with. He I was... don't believe so. He may, I mean, he may have been like a high school scientist. Like, I'm not totally sure about that part of the narrative, but I think it was that when but he first But he's not Tyson, segment, who's got like a PA, like an astrophysicist know. or whatever. Yeah, 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 he certainly is not that. I think he's done a lot of catching up of like learning, and I think he's been like a hobbyist in science, but I think it was just like he looked kind of geeky, so they decided to, he was a comedian, and like that he looked kind of geeky, so they put him on the science guy set. That's it would be funny. like Russ becoming a dentist, like, and being like <laughs> Russ the dental guy, because he like did that's it on brilliant. TV once, and we like, Russ yeah, the dental so, guy. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. awesome. I didn't know that. Wow. So, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. See? And it's been really funny watching his career because, like, I was 11 years old and saw him on this, like, kind of, like, weird, spoofy late night thing in the Seattle market because Northern Oregon gets both the Seattle and the Portland television stations. 
<laughs> so I would see this on the like local network that no one would know about. And then now he's like a national figure consulted for science. It's very surreal. Wow. Yeah. So that's mm-hmm. well, so maybe. Yeah. So I guess I guess we don't have a lot of options. We've got a, We've got Colbert. We've got LeBron James. We've got. Uh, that's a good else? ticket. But Stephen Colbert and LeBron itself, James right there. <laughs> that's Colbert true. LeBron. Or, or LeBron James and Stephen Colbert. <laughs> Because like that there way, you, you know, if like they're like, you know, if people are just like he could be like like completely set LeBron up as the straight man. Although LeBron with his assist, you know, to turnover ratio is probably better suited to throw the assist <laughs> to Stephen Colbert. But that would be pretty amazing. And it's actually a good question, you know, if Trump does get the nomination, just quickly because we are coming to the end of an hour here, who becomes his, who does he pick for VP? Because it's not going to be Cruz anymore. Obviously, they they clearly it they could elect- still be Cruz. I think I think, I think, I think it'll be that. Happen. Yeah, I think, think so. Yeah. I mean, we can we can pray. I hope so. <laughs> If if you will, um, but uh, so so Trump and Cruz, or will he will he try to like you know corner the female market by getting Carly Fiorina because then he poured in a storm? I mean, he could do a Sarah Palin type of yeah, person. Could. I think like he like could out of nowhere just go totally out there. I mean, the whole thing about Trump, like everything about Trump, is he's he's d- defying conventional political wisdom, and the reason that he's popular is that exact same thing. So everyone tries to speculate, and it's like, well, he couldn't do this. Like he's gonna pick his daughter or something like that. He's gonna just go <laughs> totally. Crazy. He's gonna do like Miss Universe pageant. Crazy. Like, there's only my one MVP. person that I trust, and it's it's my daughter. And I yeah. know she's not yeah. 35, and she's also. And I know I actually am oddly attracted to her as yeah. I bring up right, all the time. Exactly. My it's hot creepy, daughter, but the like, vice president. God. <laughs> no, so it's creepy. totally. That's calling it now. He's going to get the nomination. Well, he's not going to get the nomination because they're going to pull shenanigans at the convention. But then he's going to run as an and against whoever oh please please run as an independent. the second place please. person in the republican party is please run and as then an independent. and then he's going to pick his daughter and then when you so, guys get your wish yeah, and bernie we'll sanders be. gets elected trump will pull off his mask and like run out from behind stage and like you know grab bernie sanders hand and lift it up because he was a secret plant the whole time <laughs> the republicans will like all punch each other in the face because they will be like god damn it i knew it was too good to be true the election as scripted by vince mcmahon <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it is definitely true. I'd love to see that. And that would be the last part is Donald <laughs> exactly, Trump in a steel cage yeah. match. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, uh, gentlemen, believe it or not, our, our passionate, energetic discussion of politics, which remains, leaves us remaining, remains, uh, how do I say this? Leaves us still as friends, as always, uh, has brought us to the end of this hour. And it all started with a discussion about Intellivision. And that shows you people what you can do when uh, given three smart people who uh, sometimes agree and sometimes disagree about things. You'll get a, As long as you limit like their this. options and put them in a box. Only a few, Box. right? No Just make sure it's, you don't, don't, don't go outside of it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no creativity in candidates either. Oh, okay, God. that's the lesson. I love that we talked about the constraints of <laughs> limits on things, and we do this like free-flowing, <laughs> non-topic, non-limited podcast. Like <laughs> exactly. zero constraints. That's exactly what we do. But whatever, you know, do as we say, not as we do. If you like what we said or what we did, please let us know either way at uh, the MEP Report. We've actually started to see some comments. Our, our good uh, our friend Chad Hamby is back. Um, our uh, former Ooh, uh, listener Chad. is back. So please make sure to leave comments. Let us know if you have uh, topics you'd like us to consider. We'd be happy to look at it and fold it into our next discussion of Voltron, cartoons, comics, uh, video games, uh, Luminaria, or political candidates. So all of this awaits you. Uh, some point in the future. Say goodbye, everybody. Mapreport.com. Panya. The last time I saw old man he knew him better da da da. He was chasing a female he knew him better da da da. As he shot past, I heard him say.
She can't fly, but I'm telling you, she can run the pits of a kangaroo. But I don't She can't fly, but I'm telling you, she can run the pants of a kangaroo. Well, there is a moral to this ditty, um, but I da da da. Frost can sing, but he ain't pretty, um, but I da da da. Duck can swim, but he can't sing, nor can the eagle on the wing. Emu can't fly, but I'm telling you, he can run the pants of a kangaroo. Well, the kookaburra laughed and he said, it's true. Um, ba-da-da-da-da-da. Ah! 